So John 11 contains one of Jesus' biggest miracles in the whole Gospel of John. He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now this was a big moment. If this event were turned into a movie, it would be the whole second half of the film. Think about the movie Titanic. The big thing that happened in that movie is the sinking of an unsinkable ship. And that event takes up the entire second half of the movie. It's the big moment that made that movie such a big blockbuster. You know, the love story between Kate and Leo that was tacked onto the front of that movie was just filler, in my opinion. That might not be everybody's viewpoint, but that is the correct viewpoint. So, when we read John 11, you might be surprised to learn that the actual raising of Lazarus is only three verses in a 44-verse story. That was the big moment in Jesus' ministry. It was the biggest demonstration of God's power up till that point. It foreshadowed Jesus' own resurrection, and it was also the straw that broke the camel's back with the Pharisees. We'll see that after this, they were determined that they were going to kill Jesus one way or another. So why is there so much focus on what Jesus does before the big moment in John 11? Well, in answering that question, we're going to get a good solid look at how Jesus treated people and hopefully be able to learn how we should treat people in our lives. So let's pick up the story together in John chapter 11, starting in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. And then Jesus said, 
Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So in this extended look at Jesus' interactions with Mary and Martha, we see that Jesus customizes comfort to meet the needs of the person that he's with. John tells us that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. They'd spent time together. They ate together. Jesus taught them. Luke tells us a story about Mary and Martha that highlights their personality differences. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So yeah, Martha has a type A personality. She's a doer. She wants things to be done right, while Mary doesn't seem to be wound as tightly as her sister. She's content to simply be with Jesus. She quiets herself, listens to him, sitting at his feet while he teaches, while Martha stresses herself out in the kitchen. So here, as they're mourning the death of their dear brother, of course, Martha is the first one to march straight out and meet Jesus. And they have this dialogue together. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, your brother will rise again. I know, I know, he'll rise again at the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? If you think about it, this sounds more like a classroom discussion than the typical, I'm sorry for your loss kind of statement that you'd normally hear at a funeral. It seems that Jesus knew that what Martha needed at that point in her grief was answers. She needed information. But now look at how he interacts with Mary. She falls at his feet in tears and she says the same thing that Martha does. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus doesn't really say anything directly to Mary. Instead, John says Jesus was deeply moved and began weeping himself. No lectures, no lessons, no reminders about the resurrection, but a simple ministry of presence. I think sometimes we find ourselves in a situation like this where we know that we ought to do something or say something, but we're not really sure what that something is. And sometimes we bungle it. We try to comfort people with answers and information when all they really need is for someone to sit and weep with them. Now, the death of a family member is certainly one of those big moments like we talked about earlier. 
So this ministry of presence definitely applies in those situations when someone dies. But there are also, there's a lot of people hurting and grieving right now over things that are not as noticeable, but just as painful. There's loneliness that's brought on by being in isolation for so long. Disappointment about not being able to travel or see family members or carry out summer plans that have been in the works for a long time. There's frustration that comes with not being able to navigate life in the ways that we already know how. And there's lamenting going on over the fragile and broken state of our world. And so it's tempting for me as a preacher to jump to finding just the right words to say in these situations. If I can just, if I can just conjure up the right Bible verse or give them a helpful reminder, well then I've done my job. I've justified my role as a helper. But that's not always the solution. Sometimes people just need someone else to show up and silently shoulder the burden of grief. They need to see tears on someone else's face that say, I care about this too. So yeah, there's going to be a time to speak. There's going to be a time to act and a time to help out. But Jesus shows us here that the ministry of presence is powerful and shouldn't be neglected. So with that in mind, I want us all to take just a minute to practice that. Let's all just take a moment now to rest in the presence of God and remind ourselves that God knows what's going on in our lives. And he knows what's going on in the world right now. He's not checked out. He's not on vacation, but he is here. Emmanuel, God with us. So let's be like Mary for just a moment and sit at his feet and seek his comfort and acknowledge his love and his lordship. Let's just start by taking a deep breath in. That's nice. I need more of those moments like that in my life. Thanks for joining me in that. All right, now let's talk about robots. I recently saw some news reports about a new high-tech robot called Pediatric Hal. And this is a kind of, it's like a high-tech training dummy that doctors use to, to help people learn how to care for children in medical situations. It simulates all kinds of medical care needs for children. You can put an IV line into its arm. You can perform like full strength chest compressions. It has pupils that dilate when you shine a light into it. It even bleeds if you prick its finger to do a glucose test. And it even cries real tears. And this thing, it's amazing. It only costs $48,000. I know, right? I'm probably going to get two. Well, as I watched this news report and the inventors of Pediatric Hal talk about how lifelike it is, I was not very impressed. Take a look at this video. Hi, I'm Hal. I'm the world's most advanced pediatric patient simulator. I help healthcare students and professionals improve their skills in pediatric care through immersive simulation learning experiences. <laughs> 
wow, it's completely seamless, right? It's like, which one's the real child and which one's the robot? I can't tell. <laughs> well, when it comes to Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, is he just pulling a pediatric howl and pretending to cry so that he can fit in with all the regular humans? A lot of first century folks would have had a big problem with the concept of a God who is fully human and experiences human emotions like sadness and grief and actually cries. Maybe he's just pretending. Maybe this is just a simulation. That's what they thought. We may not share that same struggle. As modern Christians, we might be totally fine with the concept that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And we might even be encouraged by his care and concern to the point of shedding actual tears. But we may still wonder, why does he cry when he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus anyway? Well, one reason is just what we said. He was fully human, and so he experienced the same genuine compassion as Mary and Martha at the death of their brother. He genuinely loved them all, and he was deeply moved by this experience. In this situation, he reminds us of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who mourns with the mourning of his people and cries out to God, Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. Just because Jesus is able to and about to raise Lazarus doesn't mean that the pain he experiences isn't real. If you're a pediatrician and you see a hurt child, you may be 100% confident that you're going to be able to help and restore that child, but still be deeply moved in the presence of their suffering. But with Jesus, the kind of weeping he does here is not a helpless, hopeless, all is lost kind of grief, but it's one that looks towards God, toward God's future instead. And so here we see something else in Jesus that is worth imitating. Jesus grieves with hope. Grieving is okay. Grieving is healthy and it's good. We're even taught in scripture the language of lament, which encourages us to bring our honest and real life tears and griefs, our pain and our cries before God, because he is ultimately the one in whom we put our trust. We are hurt, but we continue to hope. Some Christians are not comfortable with this. They're reluctant to make space in worship for lament. It just, it kind of seems faithless. But if Jesus can grieve and mourn and weep, even with the knowledge that the future holds an antidote for that pain, then I think we can too. I've been hearing some people in our church lately lamenting about things that have been going on. The church not being able to gather together. Lamenting about the changes that we've experienced as a congregation. Lamenting about the general state of the world and the way things are. And I want to say, that's good. Bring those laments to God in prayer. But make sure that we're not just griping or complaining. Make sure that we're grieving with hope. Make sure that we still acknowledge that God is at work and we increase our trust in him. I want to encourage you to couple your grievances uh, with praises and thanksgiving. Even in John 11, Jesus weeps, yes, but he also says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Grief and thanksgiving. So I want to share with you a simple lamenting exercise that Justin told me about and that we tried in our discipleship group a few weeks back. Take out a piece of paper and you make two columns. One, a list of COVID-19 related things that, have to, that you uh, are sad and frustrated about. And then the second list, a list of things in your life right now that you are grateful for. This probably won't take you very long to do. You can come up with these pretty quickly. Once you've completed these two lists, you've got yourself a lament prayer. So I want to encourage you to take five or ten minutes at the end of our worship service to actually do this. 
this morning. Take out a piece of paper and write your own list. You can do this with the people in your household or you can do this by yourself, but it's a good exercise to do. The Apostle Paul makes a distinction between hopeless grieving when someone dies and Christians who grieve with hope of a future with God at the time of the resurrection. Some people I know love Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But when you're hurting and that verse doesn't quite cut it for you, I recommend flipping over to another 4.13 verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where Paul says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This brings us to our last observation about Jesus, and that is he brings the resurrection. So when he's talking with Martha and Martha says, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I know. I believe that Lazarus will rise again at the time of the resurrection, just like the rest of us. Jesus says, yes, that, but you need to understand something as well. I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait for it. I am bringing the kingdom of heaven into the here and now. And that's what I'm asking you to believe in, Martha, and to join me in doing. I think it's pretty common knowledge by now that the greatest movie of all time is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You guys know that, right? It's a story of two high school students who time travel throughout history, kidnapping historical figures so they can help them with their history report. Instant classic. I want you to watch this scene from this movie where they get advice about things to come from their future selves. Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Dudes, you guys are gonna go back in time. Yeah! You are going to have the most excellent adventure through history. Who are you guys? We're you, dude! No way. No way. Yes way, Ted! Look, we know how you feel. We didn't believe it either when we were you, and we us said what we us are saying right now. <laughs> Look, guys, we gotta go. Yeah, we gotta get back to the report. Rufus! Listen to this dude, Rufus. He knows what he's talking about. Right. Oh, and Ted, give my love to the princesses. Who? You'll see. Gentlemen, is everything all right? Yeah, except how come I'm number one dog? Ted, don't forget to wind your watch! Thanks, Rufus. Catch you later, Bill and Ted! So future Bill and Ted tell present Bill and Ted about things that they've experienced, things that have yet to happen to present Bill and Ted. They tell them, you're about to travel through time. They say, hey, don't forget to wind your watch. That's going to be important soon. And hey, listen to this guy, Rufus. He knows what he's talking about. And this doesn't make sense to present Bill and Ted, but it will. Give my love to the princesses. Who? You'll see. Well, N.T. Wright points out that Jesus didn't just come from heaven to earth, but he also came from the future to the present. 
Jesus brings God's future restoration that we read about in Revelation 21. God dwelling among his people, the reconciliation of heaven and earth, God wiping away every tear from every eye. Jesus is that resurrection and the life. And he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And this is a great question for us. Do we believe it? Do we invite others to believe and follow Jesus too? Three times in this story, someone says about Jesus, if you had only been here, he wouldn't have died. And you notice Jesus doesn't argue with them. I think that this statement is the gospel message that Christians have been carrying around for generations. If Jesus is there with you, then death is not the end. Do you believe that? For us, I think bringing the resurrection means bearing witness to the truth that Jesus is God's son with a mission of restoration and reconciliation. Paul puts it like this, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we started this lesson by noticing that the big moment of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead didn't get nearly as much ink as Jesus' interactions with Mary and Martha. And maybe that's because those seemingly small, insignificant moments are the ones that truly shape who we are. If you think about it, most people only have a handful of big moments in their lives, whether it's big exciting events or big crisis moments or just major life changes, they're few. And we tend to romanticize these big moments a little bit. But like the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11, they only play a small part in a much larger narrative. And character is formed in the small stuff, in the hundreds of little decisions that you make each day. The big moments reveal what you've been cultivating in the little moments, but they don't define you in quite the same way. Hence the challenge before us in this series. Watch and learn. Look at the life of Jesus and pledge yourself to treat people the way that Jesus did. Here's a quick recap of all the things that we've noticed so far. At the wedding at Cana, we saw that Jesus goes out. He gets involved and he's someone that people turn to. We saw him make time for Nicodemus, speak his language and invite him into something new. In Samaria, in Samaria, we saw Jesus go there. He goes to unsavory places. He breaks cultural norms and he's willing to have awkward conversations. In John 5, at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus heals just the one guy and he meets his immediate need. And then he asks the question, do you want to get well? In John 8, Jesus diffuses a situation with a creative third option and he shows that he has compassion on everyone. 
And with the blind man, Jesus corrects a misunderstanding so the kingdom can break through. He does the work of God as he goes along, and he was hands-on. So take your pick. There are lots of ways that we can treat people the way that Jesus did in the hundreds of ordinary decisions and interactions that we have every single day. So I want to encourage you to continue following Jesus and making daily decisions to honor him. Remember that who we are is formed in the small stuff. So now I want to invite you to take some time to do this exercise that I showed you earlier. 